Welcome to the Life Sciences WA Investment Series. Investor meets innovator. Hosted by Dr. Tracy Wilkinson, Director for Stakeholder Engagement WA at MTP Connect, WA Life Sciences Innovation Hub, and me, Peter Birch, from Talking Health Tech. In this limited podcast series, we've brought together a number of conversations with experts from medical science to finance to help demystify investing in biotech, medtech, and digital health, also known as the life sciences. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connection to land, seas, and community. We pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging, and extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. The information in this podcast is general in nature and should not be taken as a substitute for professional or financial advice. How are you, Tracy? I'm good, thanks, Kate. Glad to be back again in the podcast chair. In the ears of those that are listening. So we're into episode three of this series of a podcast to really get to know more about investing in the life sciences space, particularly in Western Australia. We've had some good conversations already in the series uh, about the general overview and understanding vaccine development and drug development. And in this episode, it features a conversation you had with Bronwyn LeGrice from Antelth. It did. Yeah. Bronwyn LeGrice is the CEO of Antelth which is a really interesting organisation. And this is a really deep dive into digital health, investing in and commercialising in digital health, which um, I think is probably one of the fastest growing areas of the, the medtech sector. And when we look at the whole like health and medical life sciences sector, the overwhelming mega trend is digital evolution of that sector. So digital health is here to stay. And this is a really interesting conversation, I think, into some of the challenges and the opportunities in that space. Absolutely. Hi, I'm Dr. Tracy Wilkinson, and I've just sat down with Bronwyn LeGrice, CEO of Antel, on the lands of the Wujak people of the Noongar Nation, to talk all things investing and commercialising digital health. So, Brian, I'm going to start with asking you to introduce yourself because you will do a much better job than me. So, can you give our listeners an insight into your background and what you've been doing in the digital health space? Thanks, Tracy, and it is great to be back here in the lands of the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation, where I was born. Awesome to be back. Thanks for having me. So, I'm Bronwyn Grice. I'm the CEO and founding managing director of And Health. And Health is Australia's only dedicated digital health commercialisation company. In terms of background, I have a varied background. I did spend seven years in beach capital prior to setting up and health, which is one of the key themes that runs through our programs is investment readiness. But before that, I was the CEO of New Zealand Bio, and I have spent over 20 years now in the commercialisation of medical technologies in its various guises, whether it's drug development, medical devices, or digital health. I've probably specialised in digital health for the last eight years, including setting up and health in 20. The project started in 2016. The company was incorporated in 2017. So we've just gone through our fifth birthday. Which Happy we, birthday. Yeah, we were too busy to celebrate our fifth birthday. That's fifth. a good sign, I think. So stay tuned for the sixth birthday <laughs> celebration of our health, which is an odd year to celebrate next year. But I, I think the real background is that I don't have a science degree. So it's a, I've always brought a somewhat, and I think many would agree, different approach to the way I view commercialisation and, and market access and investment readiness. But yeah. It's a fun place to be. 
Excellent. I'm sure that it's more fun because you're there. I might start with our podcast could actually go in a variety of directions. (laughs) What is digital health? Let's start at the beginning. I love a good definition. I used to be a debater at primary school. So what is digital health? It's funny. I don't think I was ever allowed to join the debating team. Look, digital health is really interesting. If you ask 10 people in digital health to define digital health, you may get a different answer from each of them. I don't consider myself to be a particularly good dictionary. So we work off the FDA definition of digital health, which is quite holistic. The application of technology and software with or without connected devices to change the healthcare paradigm from improving the efficiency of the healthcare system to precision genomics to connected sensors and wearables to mobile health, telehealth, and anything really that is using technology to change the clinical paradigm from an and health viewpoint we tend to focus on what we call evidence-based digital health where either clinical and or commercial evidence is required to enable that technology to make it to market. So we're talking about technologies that would probably spend a sustained period of time pre-revenue or in early revenue, very analogous to a medical device company. We don't tend to work with software-as-a-service-based companies who are selling into healthcare as a vertical or as a channel strategy, so something like a booking engine or a facilities management software. That's not really our thing. We're really focusing on where basically where technology and medical research collide to bring about changes in the clinical paradigm. That's an excellent definition. Thank you. And a really broad definition, I think. I suspect a lot of people don't realise the full breadth and depth of what digital health covers and think that it's apps. Yeah, there's a funny story to the definition thing, though, because we're here at Ausbiotech, so it's only fair that I take you back into the deep, dark recesses of the background to and health. Once upon a time, I actually chaired something called the Ausbiotech Digital Health Advisory Group, or DHAG, which is singularly one of the worst acronyms ever invented. But the DHAG was really interesting because we were trying to get our heads around where digital health and medical research and kind of life sciences start to come together. And interestingly, at the time, the big investment by the federal government was in the Australian Digital Health Agency, and it's still a very substantial government initiative that is there to support what I would call national digital health infrastructure, connectivity, workforce, platforms, like really big national platforms, my health record. But at the time, and we're going back to 2015, right? Doesn't feel like long ago, is a long time ago. Digitalhealth.gov.au actually said digital health is the digitisation of medical information. Right. At the same time as the FDA was doing the pre-certification program and had this massively wide definition of digital health. And that was actually what that definition differential was one of the things that actually made me say, hey guys, we're missing something. And we're a top five destination in health and medical research. And we are breeding some best of breed technology companies like Atlassian. We should be all over this. We are the country that goes, there's a new industry, we're going to back it. And it was just not playing there. Silence. As everyone knows, I'm very good at filling silence with noise. Hence, and health came into being. So really answers the next question that I wanted to answer. What interests you about digital health? What is it that's got you hooked for the last, what, eight years? It goes back further. So the other day I was going through the archives. We've all got the archives of presentations we gave, your shy jobs. You've probably got some from when you were a bioinformatician. (laughs) So we're going through it and I I seriously found a presentation I gave to the NZICT Association. Right. In 2009. Yep when I was the CEO of NZ Bio, talking about the convergence of ICT and life sciences. 
which is interesting. New Zealand was quite a formative experience for me. In New Zealand, you can't just hang out with life science as people. Sure. So in New Zealand, you get the ag biotech people and the human health biotech people, the industrial biotech people. They do really cool things with algae and make fuels and stuff. And then the ICT people and the tech and the SAS people, they're all in this very small one degree of separation environment. What you actually end up working on is tons of converging technologies. So it ends up by only 18% was human health back then. I don't know what it is now. <laughs> you would see ag biotech, so predominantly ag-focused research organisations coming up with human health products in that kind of yep. convergence between animal health and human health or food and human health. And it was so cool. So the kind of things you can come up with when you smash two different disciplines together I've always loved that. I think that's where the fun, really exciting opportunities lies when you're smashing two related but not really related paradigms together. Mm-hmm. The whole thing for me about digital health, what excites me is what you can unlock by bringing together what are two really different cultures. Yep. So you think about the seniority and the ten, the decades of research many researchers undertake in medical research with the Software as a service, I'm going to start an app and I'm going to be selling it in six weeks' time. Big kind of spectrum. <laughs> They're quite far apart culturally. Absolutely. And they almost need neutral territory to come together, which is what Andhold tries to find. But the other exciting thing for me is I get to see technology from anywhere. So my technology isn't from universities. It's not from medical research. It might be, but it could also be from a patient who happened to be an engineer yeah. or a caregiver who's been looking after someone who's chronically disabled for 20 years or a couple of management consultants or a couple of techies who don't know anything about health but have a really good idea about product. So it's a really diverse space. I have a short attention span, so there's enough going on that it keeps me interested, but also it's a path less travelled. So the reality is the commercialisation pathway and the value inflection points that you see in digital health are still evolving. They're not set. You can't just go, I've got a phase 2A asset in breast cancer that has outperformed what's currently in market and I can go and look at the data for acquisition of phase 2A assets for breast cancer treatments better than what's in market and I can get a rough idea about what the exit value on that tech will be. No such guidebook here. Like you are really nearly every every deal is pretty much fresh. If you're learning, it's exciting. Or if you're a little bit, you need a little bit of additional stimulation in your life like me, then it's probably a great place to be. The potential is massive. I think the other thing that I really love is when I was in traditional healthcare VC, you can work on these technologies and invest in them and make lots of money, but they never actually, while you're working on them, they don't actually really go into broad patient uptake. Yes, it might be in trials. Impacting patients. Yeah, but when we look at the kind of 10 companies that went through our pilot program for Andhill Plus, the current cohort of Andhill Plus and the kind of 30 or so companies that have done our masterclass program, Mm. 775,000 patients and counting. Can we just say that again? 775,000 patients and counting. I really want to hold our birthday when we hit a million patients. A good master. Yeah, I'm just going to get some numbers together. It's six years, a million patients have to come up with something else for the tagline. The reach of digital health is amazing. And so we're here in WA and you look at it and you go, these are companies that can grow locally and have their entire HQ here and scale globally and serve a global patient population with really only kind of medical affairs and salespeople in key markets. Yep you can actually keep the companies here. And that's actually quite unusual. And we're seeing that already. There's a few WA companies that are doing exactly 
that's a really exciting mm. opportunity, I think. In that space of opportunity that is digital health, where does Ant Health play? How do you contribute to that? We started off with an idea, which was we're going to select five companies a year over two years. We're going to spend nine months with them. We've got a little bit of money and a bit like 60 grand. And we're going to bring everyone we know in global digital health that has really done digital health. They haven't done medical devices. They haven't lectured on doing digital health commercialization. They've actually done it, breathed it, suffered the mortal wounds that occur in some of these scenarios. And we're going to bring those people from all around the world to help these companies. And every supplier we use has, have you had digital health clients? Have you done it before? There's no substitute for experience. So we ran this little program. Seed funded by MTP Connect. So without MTP Connect, and Health wouldn't exist. And I'm very open in saying that. And we're very fortunate in the range of partners we have, including the Australian Government Department of Health these days. And everyone's like, well, what are you going to do and how are you going to be sustainable? And I said, we're not going to be sustainable if it doesn't work. So I'm not going to go out and take taxpayer money to build something unless I know that we make a difference. So those 10 companies have now raised over $90 million and they've done just those guys have impacted nearly 500,000 patients, That those 10 companies. So they're very much the bulk of our outcomes. Over, I want to say, 250 commercial paying customers, over 45 clinical trials, $33 million in revenue and 400 jobs. Amazing. So you go, that works. So then what we've done is we've built out, that's quite a, that's a program that I know you want to talk to me about the viability gap. That program is designed to bridge the viability gap. Yeah. The gap between knowing it works and having a scalable global business where you can actually get paying customers. So that's what that program does. What we've done since is work with various partners around Australia to build out a whole suite of programs. So we can now provide evidence-based with world-leading speakers, programmatic support from idea to exit. Everyone from I've got an idea, we've got a product, we're FDA approved, but we still can't get paying customers. Pretty much we support all of those companies. And so there's been over 600 companies that we've worked with over five years. That's a lot of companies. Interesting, right? 74% growth in the last two years in our pipeline. Yeah. The recent report we released, Awakening Giant, 550 companies. We're up 55 companies or so since then anyway. Every time I publish something, the data is out of date. And then when you start to look at the data, you start to go, so primary clinical indication, what are they doing? Really big emergence of, so almost a quarter of our companies are agnostic in what clinical indication. So can you imagine... You're sitting there as a BC in healthcare and somebody comes in and they say, what's your clinical indication? They go, oh, we don't care. Doesn't matter. Yeah, you can't do that with drugs and devices, unfortunately. <laughs> I feel like oh, I've got a conversation would end quickly. I've got a great preclinical drug candidate for what? Anything, really. And it's agnostic because there's so many conditions that you can intervene with in technology where you can actually work across multiple conditions or you can change patient behaviour in a way that influences multiple conditions. So we know that... For example, suboptimal medication use is about a $3 trillion problem. It's enormous. So it's people not taking their meds when they should. Is that what you mean? Suboptimal medication use is hundreds of billions of dollars a year. Suboptimal medication use includes a number of things. The World Health Organization has actually pretty much said an engaged patient is the biggest blockbuster of the century. When you look at it, you can actually, with suboptimal medication use, there's a number of factors. So there's medication adherence. Do you take your med? Yeah. Then there is medication interactions and there's polypharmacy. So people who have multiple conditions and lots of drugs and whether those drugs are interacting in the right way or then you end up on so many drugs then that gives you another health condition. 
It's like the lotto, you just keep going. Lots of big thorny problems in hell. Yeah. And so these agnostic platforms are usually platforms that are saying, well, actually, we're looking at the management or the engagement of patients for chronic diseases. It's really common for a type 2 diabetes patient to also have potentially hypertension or some kind of heart condition or COPD, some kind of respiratory condition. If you've got a platform and you can support those patients across all three conditions in one product, that's really interesting. So we see a lot of agnostic, so clinically agnostic platforms, which is really different. And then outside of that, it's quite diverse. There's quite a strong representation of mental health. So 15% of the companies are mental health. Yeah. That's definitely a trend we've seen since the pandemic. Yeah, okay. I can't say that would surprise anyone listening. Yeah, it's definitely. And I think the pandemic was interesting because I think actually Australians just got comfortable talking about their mental health. I don't think I don't think we've got a bigger mental health. Well, we probably do have a slightly bigger mental health problem, especially in those states far to the east where we were locked up for long periods of time. I think we're better at talking about it and accepting it post-COVID as well. So I think we're more open about mental health. I think as Australians, we've always been quite closed about mental health. So yes, the clinical variations are really interesting. 40% think that clinicians are their primary end user and 40% think that patients are their end user and 20% others. By others, there's about eight categories there, which I won't bore you with. That's not unusual. Who they think is going to pay for it is much more varied. So one of the other challenges in digital health, which keeps you on your toes, is the people you need to love using your product because they have to love using it. Like if we've all got the apps that have lived on our phone for five years that we haven't opened for four years and 11 months and 25 days. You have to love using it, but you're probably not going to pay for it. So the reality is clinicians and patients and those that you rely on to deliver the clinical outcome have to love to use the product, but none of them really want to pay for it. So we live in a largely government-funded healthcare system and then everyone goes, yeah, but what about the US? The US is a for-profit insurance-funded healthcare system. So most people are still used to having their healthcare products subsidised in some way, whether it's by insurance or whether it's by government. And so the sad reality is many people will pay more for their fitness tracking app to compete with their mates at whatever sport you choose, yeah. cycling, running, golf, whatever it is, then they will pay to manage their own chronic diseases because they think someone else should pay for that. That's one of the biggest challenges with digital health is who do you get to pay for it? You've got to design a product that people love to use because otherwise it won't work at the same time as trying to work out somebody else that will pay for it who's possibly not going to use it day to day but is expected to pay the bill whether it's government or an employer or a hospital. It's a really fascinating, and it's ch constantly changing. It's evolving. It's like the kind of new frontier when it comes to regulatory and reimbursement structures and all of those things that are quite well established for devices and drugs. And it's not that the reimbursement's established, it's that the pathway to get reimbursement is really well known. What you need to do needs to be in the submissions, all of that stuff. Whereas in digital health, it's still a bit nebulous. I can see why there's a need for someone like Antel to come along and help people with the nebulous part of their commercialisation journey. From an investment perspective, I just wanted to go back to, we've talked a little bit about digital health being different to medtech and drugs. If you can put yourself back into those VC shoes as an investor, how are those digital health opportunities different to medtech, biotech, pharma, devices? You probably shouldn't give me the questions first because I feel like I've been trying to answer them in my ongoing monologue. Here's another, another thing for you then because we probably have covered that. What is the difference between a normal tech product oh, yeah, the and a digital health product? For sure. 
if you're building a software as a service business or some kind of two-sided marketplace, B2C or B2B, I don't really mind. You really are looking, you know, that is all that lovely startup theory of minimum viable products, get paying customers, use the paying customers to prove the product, upgrade your product, upgrade your revenue, raise money off the back of your lovely hockey stick. Personally, I never played hockey, but I do know what they look like. From an investor perspective, it's quite different, right? So tech company, you're looking at some of the same things. So team, quality of team, quality of product, product market fit, traction, all of those things. But you're also probably looking at revenue. And when you start looking at your valuation, you're probably looking really hard at revenue. Yeah. This kind of cash flow analysis. Yeah. You've been there. You know how to do those. I'm personally not a maths person, but I've got some great template spreadsheets that calculate things. <laughs> So that's your tech side. But then on the pure health side, I've all got a drugs and medical devices. You're looking at five to 10 years, no revenue, substantial R&D costs, clinical trials, publications, key opinion leaders, medical affairs, regulatory approvals, reimbursement, pricing, potentially trade sale or partner with large pharma or medtech to get distribution. But again, whether it's a medical device and it's feasibility trial data and pivotal trial data, or whether it's a drug and it's based one, two, three, and so on and so forth, as a healthcare investor, you're not looking at the discounted cash flow, but you can look at terminal value comparative. You can look at what your exit value is going to be. You can look at relatively close, and there's quite a deep database of deal data these days. You can see what the valuation of those assets will be, and you can make your money, your 10x, or in some cases 20x, without that product ever making it to market, mm-hmm. at selling one product over counter. So, because you sell on to a big farmer or a big med tech company, or then yeah, I mean, you can get your exit through a trade sale at phase two A in a lovely world. Digital health is really interesting. So, then these guys, the healthcare investors, what are they looking for? IP protection, so great, strong patent family, patent estate. They're looking for the quality of the research, the peer review, the pathway, the known clinical trials, the known regulatory pathways, key opinion leaders, all of that stuff, right? And you can really start to de-risk that using that framework by exit valuations based on a deep database and comparators and some discounted cash flow because that's a kind of combination approach. And then you can do that. But then digital health is really interesting, right? So we have companies and they've all got clinical data, compelling clinical data, they might have been turning over somewhere between one and three million dollars a year for three years. But hey, it works. So medical devices and drugs, if you know it works and it's better than what's out there, there's money, right? That that's you're there. In digital health, it can work and yet never scale. That's why we don't call it the valley of death, not least because it's a really old tired term and I hate it. But the viability gap is because we know it works clinically. The big gap and where you see big failures and write-downs in digital health is actually how do you take that clinically valid product and turn it into a scalable, sustainable, growing global business? And that's hard. And even the digital health veterans don't get it. And we saw that with the Teladoc Livongo transaction. They paid 60 times revenue, 60, 60, not 16, 60 times revenue, $18 billion acquisition, written down by over $6.6 billion within six months of closing the transaction. Now, that's pretty clear on our, oops, from a transactional perspective. Mm -hmm. Admittedly, timing of the transaction went going right at the peak of a, I'll use the B-word, bubble, (laughs) and going into a period of market correction, sure. But the reality is that write down was over 30% of the transaction value. That's a big write down. It's huge. And... It was an outlier on revenue multiple anyway. 
you look at that and go, even the people that have been in digital health a while don't always get it right. And the market correction is really pounding some of the, especially US data, US companies in terms of data, they have better data, so it's easier to quote those numbers. Mm -hmm. But when we look at valuations of the US companies, especially NASDAQ listed companies, some of them are trading at 20% of their 2020 valuations, 10 to 20% of their valuation. Oh, wow. Yeah. Big drop. Big drops, right? That's the viability gap, that. The difference between drugs and devices, you've got that whole like when you hit those key clinical milestones, you know there's a valuation uplift attached to those. In digital health, you can get great clinical data and everyone go, great, does anyone want to pay you for it? Because we know that if you can change patient behaviour, you can intervene in these clinical paradigms. We know you can affect change. So you can get clinical data, but can you actually get you also might need commercial evidence, so healthcare utilisation studies, real-world evidence studies, health economic studies. Great. So you've got then you've got the data, but then can you get someone to pay for it? It's who's going to pay for it? Why are they going to pay for it? So in the US, interestingly, in that kind of for-profit healthcare system, there's different levers. So when way back in the day, and it's so long ago now, when Obamacare came in and they actually started this concept of penalties. So if you have a patient admitted into an ED for COPD or any kind of chronic condition and you discharge them and then they're readmitted within a prescribed period of time, then as a provider, you're up for a massive penalty. Yeah. So suddenly, incentive. when they send you home, they really want you to take your meds. <laughs> same thing with sleep apnea machines. So they were, sleep apnea companies like ResMed were actually some of the first companies in the world to embed remote patient monitoring in their products. And it was basically because the reimbursement agencies, so in the US, reimbursement said, we know CPAP works. We know there's a large population with sleep apnea, but the majority of people with sleep apnea get their CPAP, use it per week, put it on the bed, never use it again. Problem. And then all the health impacts of sleep apnea, like a 500 times chance of stroke or whatever it is, they don't go away. So we're paying for this thing that's not, but it's not that it doesn't work. It's not being used. Yep. And so they said, in order to be reimbursed for CPAP, you have to actually prove that you've used it. And I'm going to get the numbers wrong. Next time I see Mick Farrell, he'll probably give me a hard time. It's something like you were using it 70% of the time for 90 days. Okay. So you had to prove adherence before it could be reimbursed. Not least because the 90 days gives you enough time to actually start to feel the health benefits of actually breathing while you're sleeping, which strangely enough makes you feel better breathing while you're sleeping. It's not so, really so, that strange. <laughs> when you think about it, it makes sense. That kind of remote patient monitoring. So we know these things work, but again, what drove that? That was a policy decision that drove that. Why are they going to pay for it? Are they going to prevent penalties? Are they going to... The one thing we get a lot from digital health companies that come to Ant Health is, and I know they pitch this to every investor because we hear it from nearly every company, we can save the health system X dollars per patient per year. Who pays for the health system? It's a combination of federal and state governments. Who are you asking to pay for the technology? Somebody down here at Charlie Gardner Hospital. They don't run the health system. Their incentive to act in the greater good to save the health system money is not how their personal performance is managed on a day-to-day basis. So they only want to know how it works for them. And often, too, you're asking, like, subscription-based models These aren't like MRI machines. They're coming out of OPEX budgets, not CAPEX budgets. So they're different. They're not balance sheet items. They're P&L items. And then you've got hospitals all over the country that are at the end of the day trying to do enormous amounts of things for Australians with really tight state and federal budgets. Yeah. 
they're all operating at the end of their operating tether, I guess. <laughs> Guys, then, yeah, but if you drop 100 grand a year on this product, those patients will cost you $2 million less over the next 10 years. They're going, not budgeting my budget. I'm not balancing the budget in 10 years. I'm balancing the budget right now and I don't have 100 grand. Yep. It's why will they pay? And things like reimbursement or counter incentives and incentives work really well for change of behaviour. So policy settings change behaviour. The other thing I think we don't do well in Australia from an investment perspective, and I think it, I'm hoping it will change, is that we don't buy a lot of Australian training products. So if you think about the purchasing power of our healthcare system in Australia, yes. that's enormous. Agreed. And yet there's no, the, the single biggest feedback we get from very small to quite large digital health companies in Australia is that it's incredibly difficult to get bought, to have your product purchased by an Australian healthcare system. And in fact, what we see is a lot of those technologies getting traction in offshore markets before they can sell into Australia. Yeah. That's quite hard too, because then the offshore markets are going, why doesn't anyone in Australia use this? It's amazing. <laughs> there's a procurement story here too. But yeah, so it's who will pay? Why will they pay? And then how will they pay? Is there an insurance mechanism? Is there a reimbursement mechanism? Is there a, some of these different pots of money in the healthcare system? In fact, there's an enormous map of pots of money. Can you get listed through the NDIS? Can you get listed through the National Diabetes Scheme? There are also other schemes that of and pots of money outside the traditional medical device and pharmaceutical re- and Medicare reimbursement frameworks that may also fund but everyone's still trying to find them. I think it's a really important thing for someone to look at, right, as an investor who are looking at an opportunity to really say, do you truly understand how, like, what the business model is here and what it looks like and scratch the surface a little bit on the the conversation? So the one thing investors have to do, so it's like me, I'm a non-scientist, but I worked at a healthcare BC, right? My strength was if I take the science as red, I'm going to look at all the other stuff. Yep. So the investor has to go, if I can assume that you can improve the lives of diabetics by 50%, hypotheticals here, guys, I'm not trying to be specific. I'm trying to be really agnostic because we work with so many companies, I have to make sure I don't favour them. We're going to improve the life of diabetics or people with COPD or uh, people who've suffered a stroke by 50%. If you take that as red, the question is, how is this company going to breach the viability gap? If I fund them... Where am I funding them to? At what point does that viability kick in? And you really need to understand the sales cycles, could be 18 months. You really need to understand they might have to do pilots and how those pilots are constructed and trying to really build in that commerciality in the back end of those agreements. You have to understand that they might do 100 pilots and never get a paying customer. So how are they going to get to viability? If you don't know how they're going to get there and you can't verify what they tell you in a meeting with using expert networks, reaching out to people, then you really need to think really hard about it. Agreed. Absolutely. I don't. I think this is not somewhere that you want to just jump in. As we, I shared the stage with Chris Nave from Branded Capital yesterday mm. and Simon Grangorge from IP Group. I was about to say Onkares. And as Chris said, one investment in this space is not how you do it. You have to have a portfolio. And even as and healthware non-profit and non-equity taking, counterintuitive for a non-practicing BC. So as Chris and Simon and I were talking yesterday, if you're going to invest in this space, you really need to think about how you are going to diversify your risk. As even as and health, non-profit, non-equity taking. 
totally counterintuitive for somebody who considers themselves a professional investor. We invest, right? We're investing taxpayer resources, taxpayer money. All us, most of our staff are supported by taxpayer funds, right? So we're custodians of other people's money. But when we're investing resources, whether it's through programs or directly investing through the Ant Health Plus program, we are always looking at our portfolio. So the Ant Health Plus program takes five companies from 100 a year. So if you're going to invest in this space, one, you need to be able to finance a spread. So you need a portfolio. It's no different to any other emerging technology. You need a portfolio to give yourself some risk diversification. And you should be working on the idea that for every 10 pitches, you pick one. So you need to see a lot of pitches. I think a lot of meetings, look at a lot of companies. Yep. And the only other thing I'll say, and not to be not, founder friendly, as an investor, you almost have to be cynical. You need to be able to say, I've heard your pitch. I want to know where that market number comes from. And I want to know the link to that publication. And I want to know if that's really the competitive landscape. You really do have to question stuff. That's what due diligence is all about. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. And on that note, once you've done all those, sat through all those pitches and you found your five out of your hundred that you think are good case studies. I wonder if you can talk us through some Australian success stories that you've seen to sort of illustrate a few stories because I think everyone loves a good story or a good case study. This is where I get in travel, right? So we've, in our flagship program, we've worked with 15 companies and we're about to announce another five. And so when you pick some, you almost feel bad. It's like picking favourite children, which apparently you're not allowed to do. No. No? Not allowed no. to do that? Okay. No. I'll make sure I remember that when I talk to my kids. Look, Sam Medical, I've talked about them. I'll call them a success story because they were in our first ever cohort and they were too big to apply for the current MRFF funded and Health Plus program. So that's not bad, right? That's that's, they're actually too many. They've got too many staff. They're too big. Taking a really hard to access and hard to undertake diagnostic observation period of seven days in a hospital for epilepsy and turning that into something you can do at home. Reimbursed, unusually reimbursed and off-the-shelf componentry, so in revenue quite early and then built their own, almost followed a more tech trajectory. They were able to do it as a under the current codes using what they would do in a hospital room but just delivering it somewhere else. Yep, so location innovation. But they've now turned that into an FDA-approved proprietary, very nice-looking piece of kit. So they're cool, Melbourne-based. DoseMe was an interesting piece of software for precision dosing of high-risk drugs using Bayesian dosing and just turning it into a really sexy little piece of software. Doctors should have done the four-hour calculation to dose patients but clearly don't have four hours to do that, so they would titrate doses and this actually spits out dosage rates that are really accurate, really changed length of stay in hospital for high-risk patients. Acquired by Tabula Rasa, NASDAQ listed. Perks Health Adherence, Multimodal Adherence and Patient Engagement Platform, some others, one WeGuide, which is a spin-out of Curve Tomorrow, who have a base here which is a really cool no-code platform for patient engagement, remote cardiac rehab, because interestingly, this goes to health equity. It's not even about people don't take up rehab. Lots of people in Australia can't access cardiac rehab because mm. it's too far away. Yeah, There's some really transformational things because it's not just transforming patient outcomes, it's transforming access to people for people that can't easily access these quite life-changing services as well. That's just a few of them, and I'm sure I'll get in trouble from some of the others. I'm going to keep going now. VaxApp, which is speed up time to vaccinate large populations of people and ensure that people who know what vaccines they're eligible for and in a preventative health setting, it's quite a big deal. So VaxApp are good. They've been deploying across Australia. 
a fully fledged platform that some of the big tech companies are still trying to build, ironically. And Sound Scouts is a hearing, a gamified hearing chest for children. If you look across all of those, are there any sort of things that leap out as kind of key ingredients for success that are similar across them all? Or do you really have to take each one on its own merits? I think from a viability gap, you really do need to take everyone on their own merits because they all have different payment pathways and natural paying customers. There's always the fact that they had a natural paying customer and that they No, some of don't. They like, do, but they don't because they might pay once. How do you get them to keep paying? It's not natural and absence of reimbursement. What is the motivation? Yeah, I think we work with companies to try and bridge the viability gap. What is consistent is quality and coachability of founders, legitimacy of market need, competitive landscape. So those kind of key ingredients transcend digital. And a product that is developed in an environment that will withstand regulatory scrutiny. One of the interesting things we get is a lot of our international advisors are really surprised by the fact that our companies don't have what they would deem basic storage, security, privacy, quality management systems in place from day one. Yeah. So we see a lot of companies retrofitting medical grade software development QMS after the MVP is being developed, whereas in bigger, more mature markets, it tends to be the code is written in that QMS environment from kind of day one. Yeah. So that QMS is actually quite hard. It's actually easier to do it from day one. I'd love to see some concerted effort in Australia, across Australia around establishing QMS for companies on day one. Because if you could be compliant with ISO 13485 or ISO 27001, or ideally both if you're a software as a medical device company, from day one, then whatever you develop can go on to go into a regulatory environment without having to go, wait. Yeah. So you're saying it's of time and money. Yeah, it's a hygiene thing and it'd be just really good. And I think there's an element of naivety around QMS for tech companies who are working yeah. health. And, of course, a lot of our founders don't come from a medtech manufacturing lab mm. where they're used to that kind of documentation and stuff. Yeah. But I think that would be one area where I think Australia could really accelerate how quickly they can go through the kind of later stage of commercialisation through having some really cool platforms to support them early on. Yeah. Knowing the regulatory environment is really key Knowing your claims is really key. Founders that listen and are coachable and really want to learn is really key. Agreed. One last thing, because I want to end up on a bit of a high or at least a positive note. Do you think the conditions are really right for growth in this sector? Well, clearly it is growing year on year, but what's the outlook when you look at digital health? If I say no, I'll do myself out of a job. Sure. Look, absolutely. Look, this is an industry where we can grow locally and scale globally. You can impact patients all over the world from here. We have amazing amount of tech talent coming through. We have just decades of leadership in health and medical research. We have a we have an amazing healthcare system, much as we all like to complain about it. We have amazing clinical trials capabilities. We have all the ingredients. It's all about focus and support. On that note, I'm going to wind up and say thank you very much, Bron, for talking with us today about everything digital health. If anyone has any questions. Is there a way that they can connect into Antelth as investors? Sure. So we're hopefully running an event later in the year, too, which is actually about due diligence in digital health with one of our International Investment Committee members. Fantastic. That's in Melbourne, a bit of cross-country tourism. So I encourage everyone to sign up to the Antelth mailing list Absolutely. and follow you on LinkedIn and yeah. Twitter if they're looking to stay in touch with information and 
details like your Awakening Giant report, which is a really good read. <laughs> Thanks. The other thing is a masterclass program, which is funded through Ready, which yeah. MTP Connect support. We actually get a lot of industry participants who are digital health companies doing that, and we've had investors go through that, and they've all loved it and shares a real deep dive into digital health commercialisation. So don't be put off by the fact our programs appear designed for companies because sometimes there's programs where we say, hey, actually, why don't you come along and because it's a rising tide floats for boats, right? So it's a nascent industry. So if we mature companies and spin them out into an Australia that's not ready for them and doesn't have enough knowledge to support them, then we're not actually helping to solve and health so that we can facilitate more investment, so from investors, but also so that we can all help to grow these companies. That's a worthy reason to get up in the morning. So thank you very much again, Ron. Really appreciate it. We've been talking digital health with Bonwin LeGrasse from Ant Health. Thanks a lot. This podcast has been brought to you by Life Sciences WA, which is Western Australia's Life Sciences Industry Association, in collaboration with Talking Health Tech. It's been made possible with funding support from the Western Australian Government through the New Industries Fund and the Ready Initiative, managed by MTP Connect, on behalf of the Medical Research Future Fund and with the support of Ant Health. If you liked this episode, please complete the feedback survey. There's a link to that survey you can access from within your podcast player. You can also follow Life Sciences WA on LinkedIn and Twitter or subscribe to the mailing list at lifesciencewa.com.au.